This is John Drabinski, and you're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Mari Crabtree, who teaches in the Department of African American Studies at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. Mari has published on African American history and culture with particular emphasis on trauma, the history of lynching, and critical aspects of African-American humor. Along with a number of articles, she recently published My Soul is a Witness, The Traumatic Afterlife of Lynching, out with Yale University Press in late 2022, and the occasion for our conversation today. In this conversation, we discuss the origins of the project, conceptions of trauma the book both adopts and modifies, the meaning of memory in African-American culture and history, the blues as readerly sensibility, and Crabtree's productive method of reading absences and silences. Hello, Mari. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really happy uh, we have time to talk about your book today, uh, My Soul is a Witness. Uh, it's fresh out, actually. I think it's only been out a few weeks yeah. uh, at most. So um, happy to be on the front end of, of conversing about this book. I wanted to say, uh, just to get started, how just say how much I like this book. It's um, emotionally, I think, a really difficult read, um, as it should be. It's a book about trauma and lynching, um, but it's also incredibly dense with information and material and processing of all of that. I just learned so much from this book um, and really loved reading it. And um, there are passages and parts of this book that really uh, left me short of breath. And uh, for me, that's one of the real successes of the book. I think it's really wonderfully written as both a scholar and as a, as a person. So I just wanted to say that as, as we got started, because I, I just really love that aspect of the book. It's I can't imagine quite what it's like to write a book about lynching in the sense of that you take it as something that's not a remnant in the past. Um, but something that haunts the present. And I think you really access that. It's just really wonderfully executed. Thank you for it. Well, thank you so much for that. I um, I did want to pay very close attention to the writing as I was um, writing and revising. And so I, I'm glad that you found it a good read. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, let me ask you, uh, you know, just thinking about the, the seriousness of the topic and its and its uh, urgency, you know, whatever, uh, h- however we get into conceptions of time and history and memory as we go, but the urgency is both about the past and about the present. And so sort of in that spirit, I wanted to ask you as a way of getting started, you know, what motivated you to write this book? You know, writing a book is no uh, small undertaking. You put aside so much of your life uh, just to make the time to write, all the difficulties of putting words on the page and editing them and getting feedback, uh, but also this material being um, so difficult to take on as as a as a human being. So something obviously motivates and pulls 
every author along in a book. And so I wanted to start really by asking you about the origins of this project. What are the sort of ethical, personal, philosophical concerns that drew you to the questions in My Soul is a Witness and why write this project now? So um, I had originally thought about writing a dissertation on a very different subject, which was going to be about um, kind of con- the contestation over Black identity in New York City uh, mm. when you had uh, folks from the Caribbean and from the U.S. South and then uh, Northern Black people also kind of all coming t- together. And um, there was a uh, moment during that time when I was thinking about doing that project where I just wasn't sure if that was getting to the roots of why I'm interested in black studies in the first place Mm -hmm. and what it is that I think is so powerful about black studies. And so uh, I thought about, so what are the texts that have, and and the thinkers and the ideas and questions that have really moved me. Mm -hmm. And one of the places I went to was thinking about memory studies. I, as an undergraduate, uh, one of my professors was David Blight. And so his kind of questions about memory studies lingered. And I'd also read uh, very deeply with uh, another one of my professors, Jeff Ferguson, about James Baldwin. And he actually introduced me to James Baldwin as a writer when mm-hmm. I was a first year student. And so it was a kind of a combination of thinking about um, some of those early questions and, and texts that that started the, the process. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I teach in, in Charleston, South Carolina. But at the time, I didn't even know that, hate to say this, I didn't know that my, the institution where I teach existed <laughs> when I was coming up with this project. Sure. And, um, but it was around the 150th anniversary of secession and the Civil War when I was mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. thinking about this. And I remember reading a New York Times article about Charleston, South Carolina, celebrating secession with a costume ball and getting so livid that they would dare celebrate secession as though it had nothing to do with enslaving millions of people. Yeah. And I thought, and I was incorrect about this, but I thought, you know what they wouldn't dare pretend is about anything other than racist violence is lynching. And so I took that thought, um, I then had recently read Going to Meet the Man, this short story by James Baldwin about memory and lynching, although he's focusing Mm -hmm. much more on kind of the white uh, memories of of lynching Mm -hmm. and um, started thinking about many of the questions at the center of this book. And I wanted Mm -hmm. to do a black studies version of this, right? I wanted to center um, African-American survivors and victims and communities Mm -hmm. and culture. And so I took what Baldwin was thinking about um, and this emphasis on memory, the emphasis on the long impact of violence Mm -hmm. in the South um, and came up with the, with the project. Yeah. (laughs) I always uh, wonder what percentage of the people, you know, celebrating secession, you know, and those terms would also say, you know, slavery was a long time ago. Why can't you just leave it behind? Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's like really the same group that uh, wants to uh, keep the past alive or imagine it alive uh, in that way. Um, 
No, I, that's, I'm glad I asked. That's a, that's a, that's a visceral you know, origin of a project, mm-hmm. right? It's not a, well, there's this missing piece in scholarship. That's, you know, a moment of outrage and, and, you know, the ethical can, I appreciate that ethical shift. And I think you're right. That's something that African-American studies always has to, to, to teach, right. Mm-hmm. Is, is where you center the affective life. And even this, the epistemologies of, of things like the memory of lynching mm-hmm. is no, it's in some ways the crux of the question. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the book, I, I mean, that's, that does stand out. That commitment absolutely stands out in the book. Um, before we even get inside the book, I want to ask you about both the subtitle and uh, the title and subtitle. And I'll ask at the same time. And, and, you know, I don't know if you want to blend an answer together or sort of answer them separately. But your title, My Soul is a Witness, it comes from um, Baldwin's Evidence of Things Not Seen. And so I'm curious to, you know, hear you talk to me, you mentioned Baldwin, um, uh, you know, going to meet the man as, as part of this sort of origin of the project. And so I'm interested in how this line from Baldwin for you frames the book, you know, like every, every good title does frames the book, orients us in the book. So hearing you talk a little bit about that, I'd, I'd love to hear. But also the subtitle, which in some ways for me is the substance of the book in just a few words, right? Uh, the traumatic afterlife of lynching. And so I'm interested, of course, about trauma, and that's a separate question I really want to talk to, talk about in some detail. But this notion of an afterlife, and I think this notion of afterlife and afterlives has become a uh, uh, a trope in the last five, six years, and really productive one. And it's very specific in your book. So I also wanted to ask you to talk about this notion of afterlife and what that says about the time of lynching, right? Or mm-hmm. the temporal meaning of lynching. So really a question about the title and subtitle, specifically the Baldwin citation and this notion of afterlife. Yeah, so the uh, full kind of quote from Baldwin is, my memory stammers, but my soul is a witness. And uh, that was a little too long to make as a title, so I picked the, the last part of that. Um, but the mem- my memory stammers, I thought, was really evocative as well, you know, thinking about what it means for memory to be present but not fully articulated, um, for memory to stay with someone but not be in the front of their mind or even something that's spoken about. And what I liked about my soul as a witness is kind of sitting with the possibility that some of the things that we remember, even if it's not being talked about, hasn't left us. Mm -hmm. And that to me gets to some of the temporal elements of the book. Um, I, in, I used the word afterlife, um, partly because of the temporal nature of afterlife, right? It's after Mm -hmm. someone has departed. Um, There's also um, the recognition of death, which is at the center of lynching. Um, And yet an afterlife is something beyond just the finality of death Mm -hmm. as well. And so when I think about the traumatic afterlife of lynching, I'm thinking about it both in terms of the horror that stays with people after a traumatic event, but also Mm. the ways in which they find a pathway through and hopefully beyond the trauma. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what I wanted the subtitle to capture was this kind of temporal pushing that I wanted to do in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and to also think about life, uh, this life, this other life that happens even after these hor- just absolutely horrific deaths also happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, the full quotation there. I, I also say, um, I, I hate to like mention my own project when we're talking about your book, but I trying to finish, just need to finish this book on Baldwin, where I also have a, a quote from Baldwin as a title. He has little snippets of his sentence are perfect titles. I swear mm-hmm. there's like thousands of titles in that nonfiction. <laughs> um, but that, that full line that you, that you recall that, that notion of stammering has always interested me in that moment because that's also, and I don't know if it's what he's evoking, but uh, Moses stammers before God when he receives the 10 commandments. And I think there's, there's an indication there of like the holiness of, of witnessing, right? Yeah. That, that one, one has to be present to what one witnesses mm-hmm. um, in the sense of the Hebrew notion of, of God in the, the Hebrew Bible, right? Of, of the ineffable, right? Who requires a sort of respect. That's why God, that's why Moses stammers is, you know, this is too much to take on, but has to be witnessed. And um, you know, just the way, you know, I, was interesting when you were say you, you know you were say, saying something about lynching. You were, how do you find the words to say this incredibly awful, this unspeakable? You know we don't really have those words, and it's almost like we stammer in front of the word lynching, mm-hmm. right? Because the word itself is kind of calling us to that moment of witness, mm-hmm. um, and that you know. So that whole title and just hearing you talk about it, but also my own self. You know, I think about my own classrooms when I've tried to talk about lynching. It's like you don't have those words, those adjectives to go before it. Yeah, it's a kind yeah. of stammering. Yeah, and there's a moment in uh, the chapter on the blues in the book where I talk about BB um, King, who stammered as a kid and who's, uh, who had older family members who also stammered. And he sort of described, I think it's his great-grandfather, as like he stammered, but he could speak through the barrel of a gun <laughs> when he uh, got really angry. Yeah. And so the, 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 what I liked about thinking about that idea of stammering was that there are these ways in which eventually sometimes what can't be so easily put into words does kind of get expressed, but it might not necessarily be through language. It might be through the barrel of a gun or in BB King's case through song and through music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I I love that. Yeah. Um, That sort of, how do you, how do you speak where I think of Stefan George, um, you know, speak where words break off, right? Mm-hmm. That breaking, that stammering, sound, culture. And I, I want to ask you to talk more about blues in a minute because I, that's one of the most interesting uh, features of, of the book. And it it's both explicit and lurks, but, but I'll ask you about it in a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of blue, maybe, I did want to ask you about the cover, um, mm-hmm. which is blue. Um, and you know, I, I thought it was really striking. It's it's quite simple in the sense of of its, you know, uh, at first glance, it's not like a like a loud work of art or a person or a photograph, but it's this sort of fog or smoke or haze, 
right? That that's around it. And I just I wanted to ask you about the cover because mm-hmm. the simplicity of it is so striking and seemed to me to be so embedded in the maybe what we could call like the soul of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to ask you about you know about the cover, your thoughts on the cover, and how you think it actually gets us into the meaning of the book. Which and by the way, the cover will be visible for people listening to the podcast. So it'll it'll be a, uh, you know can pop up and people can see it. Yeah. So um, I had uh, been asked by the press what I what kind of guidance I wanted to give on the cover, and I said, and they asked me what color scheme and themes and and what and a few words to describe the book that might help them developed the cover and I, I, I said it was fairly obvious that blue would make sense because the blues are so important to this. But also I think that there's a kind of melancholy uh, mood in, in a lot of ways in this book and a heaviness and um, hauntedness in the book. So I wanted something that would evoke some of that feeling um, in, in you know on the cover, I did initially really want to have artwork, um, so I had a couple uh, paintings mm-hmm. that I kind of set my heart on, and for uh, other reasons, like didn't end up getting on the on the cover. But I do really like it because I do think it um, it definitely sets the mood as a melancholy, haunted, um, introspective, hopefully, read. And interestingly. It's all of those things, I think. Um, and it's also just a really, really beautiful cover, you know, and that's I, maybe that gets into the blues question in a minute here. But, um, you know, the way it's also beautiful while also, you know, a, especially after reading the book and seeing, re, you know, you know, sort of putting it down and looking at the cover. Mm-hmm. I just really had that point where I was like, well, I didn't quite get the cover <laughs> right mm-hmm. until I read it. And mm-hmm. then I look back at the cover and I'm like, well, what lurks behind this sort of haze of yeah. the cover is is now I feel it right it's like yeah. a symptom sort of lurking underneath that yeah, yeah. and I knew I didn't want to have like uh, a lynched body or something on the cover which is fairly typical in lynching scholarship to have um, lynching postcards and things like that reprinted and I the the book is about lynching um, but it really is about black living mm-hmm and so I wanted to make sure that that was clear from the get-go. Yeah, for what it's worth, I'm glad that you didn't have a picture of lynching on the cover. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, for lots of reasons. Um, but let me ask you about, you know, the the subtitle, the traumatic afterlife of lynching, to sort of seize on that word uh, trauma. And it's interesting. It was really interesting for me to read this because my own uh, book from a few years ago on Glissant. Uh, is in the first couple chapters really about the Caribbean sense of trauma in relation to Holocaust and Holocaust scholarship on traumatic experience and memory. So I was really interested in this sort of shift north in terms of geography to the United States. And so I want to ask like, you know, a couple of things about that, you know, um, you know, what you, you know, what do you think that difference is when we think about, traumatic memory and traumatic experience and its inheritances um, in relation to the Holocaust in, that, in, in a distinction sense, right, of, of making a distinction in the African-American experience. And what you think 
that sh- that notion of trauma as a critical concept helps us see about African American memory and, and history, right? Because it is a concept, and all concepts help us see things. So, both, yeah. what is that difference for you, and what do you think deploying it as a critical concept helps us understand about lynching, but also the way lynching is is also a, a, a sort of cornerstone, but also part of a, a longer. Um, uh, story about traumatic foundations of the African American experience. Yeah, I think there's there's quite a bit that I um, could take from the existing trauma studies literature, because there's certain elements of trauma that are very much generalizable. Mm-hmm. Um, the ways in which trauma is, comes back in unexpected and often um, really. Uh, upsetting ways, um, the way in which trauma um, is difficult to articulate, um, the ways in which different people who witness the same thing might not have the same traumatic response. I thought a lot of, especially on the level of psychology, um, Mm -hmm. it was really uh, helpful to look at what has already been written on on trauma um, in, in trauma studies. I think one of the biggest differences in terms of historical context, though, if you're looking at um, mid 20th century Europe, uh, in particular Germany, and you're looking at uh, the Jim Crow South and the end of the Jim Crow South, is the vast difference in how um, both of these places have talked about or failed to talk about what happened. Mm-hmm. And you have in the U.S. South, um, generally speaking, this resounding silence about the harm of Jim Crow, in particular lynching, especially in the places where they happened. And so instead of putting up monuments, instead of having, you know, recording the stories of people who survived lynchings and massacres and all sorts of other kinds of violence that were that was part of Jim Crow, the tendency has been to ignore, try to forget, paper mm-hmm. over, and the like. Whereas in Europe, you know, you have museums dedicated to memory. You have reparations, you have court cases, you have um, even more, most recently there was a court case um, involving, I think, a 90-something-year-old woman um, who mm-hmm. was a secretary at a, at a death camp. So you're, you see a, a different kind of public reckoning. You see it issuing from the state. You see it in um, public spaces, in public discourse, in schools, and and in, in many of these other sorts of um, institutional ways manifesting. Whereas in the U.S., it's only been the last few years that we've seen much done in terms of memorializing lynching victims. Um, most of that has come from uh, grassroots organizations, not the state. Uh, a lot of that has been privately funded, and a lot of it is not um, not consumed or uh, viewed in the same way by white Southerners, for example, and black Southerners. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when you think about Jim Crow and you think about trauma, the lack of witnesses and the lack mm-hmm. of a kind of ability to articulate in a safe way what one has survived 
um, Mm -hmm. unless you're within the black community or you're within a family or even within like a very close knit group of friends um, has made it so that the trauma gets processed differently because those other avenues of processing it on a broader kind of social cultural level have largely been foreclosed. And we're getting to the mm-hmm. point where the vast majority of the people who witnessed or survived what we think of as like kind of that peak period of lynching are no longer alive. And mm-hmm. so we're losing a lot of these stories. And we're also, well, I think just as importantly, losing the opportunity for, for folks to get closure um, or yeah. something. And closure might be too neat of a word, but to get some kind of witnessing to what they have been through. And so when I think about trauma in the African-American community, um, I wanted to make sure I was attentive to the kind of lack of uh, the silences, collective silences Mm -hmm. um, by the state, by white institutions, by white communities, um, but also attentive to the specific cultural tradition through which African-Americans found a way to make it through. And mm-hmm. I, I use the blue sensibility as the way in which I grounded in a black cultural tradition um, because it's not, not just for convenience or something, but because I really think it describes um, how the, the wide range of ways in which um, black communities, black families um, ended up finding a, a way to make it through to process mm-hmm. those memories, sometimes to silence those memories, sometimes to surreptitiously talk about those memories, sometimes to use those memories as the kind of galvanizing force for protest. Um, and I wanted to, um, I, I, I made more sense when I thought about it through the blues. Um, mm-hmm. And it allowed for me to think about this wide range of responses Um where you do have silences, but you also have protests in the same, same yeah. time and place. I mean, that you know, the that relationship between, uh, uh, you know, trauma and forgetting is, as you say, is like sort of broad sort of phenomenon. But <clears throat> the way forgetting has been so institutionalized, as you were saying, in this country around lynching, around Jim Crow, even around slavery. I mean, I'm always struck when you know, when my students say, you know, oh, we don't need another film about slavery. And I'm like, how many films have we actually had about a 246 year practice? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, we actually have not had that many, but, you know, so that even I think conscious, you know, people who want to be conscious of the traumas of our history, I think we often do fall into that habit of forgetting to say like our institutions need to sort of be reduced in their, you know, public institutions like museums and gardens and government holidays or all these ways we mark things. Um, but, you know, when you talk about the afterlives of the afterlife or afterlives of lynching, you know, it had those lives have to live somewhere, right? And, and looking to, to the question of culture, you know, how does it live in, 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 um, cultural life, right? Expressive culture in the, in the case of blues. And I think and so, also, how do you live when the people who did this get to like walk down the street? Yes. Right in your neighborhood. Like how do you live when the place where it happened is still there? Um, 
I, I, it's, it's just really incredible how different that is. Not that you can't be haunted by, by like a, a concentration camp or something like that. Um, even if there is memorialization around it, but the fact that so many of the people and perpetrators in the places just kind of get to be normal and normalized yeah. is just astounding to me how people live through that. I remember, um, teaching a class on, uh, it was called Truth and Reconciliation in the Americas. And we were talking about, um, we were reading uh, Nunca Mas, the, the Argentinian sort of statement on, on the, the disappearances and the military dictatorship. And I remember uh, one of them was talking about, you know, one of the witnesses was talking about, you know, we see these generals who we know ordered or even conducted like mass murders and they're just walking around, you know, and this is sort of what the Madres are supposed to be doing is sort of playing this sort of pull their conscience right into this notion of the maternal. But I remember a student saying like, I can't believe that happened, right? They're just walking around. And I had mentioned exactly that. I said, look, it was in Massachusetts. I was at Hampshire college. And I said, you know, I mean, we walk on land where, like, you know, uh, all these Native Americans were murdered and driven off of here, but we don't even mark it, right? Mm -hmm. And in the South, all those photographs of people having a picnic at a lynching or cheering on, you know, the assault of children trying to integrate a school, they're like regular people walking around. And I think you're right, it's something... Um, I don't want to say singular, that's too strong, but there's something that has to be taken up in its specificity around what that means for trauma and memory. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I'm so glad that, that you take that on in this book because it's really hard. I mean, it's like you say, like, well, how could this person be walking around? Mm -hmm. um, and even I think in our, you know, really sort of 45 second attention span sort of uh, culture and social media, I remember when the owner of the Dallas Cowboys football team you know, photographs surfaced of him at one of these like moments of harassing a student integrating a school. And at first people were like, oh, what a terrible person. I can't believe this. And then like within a day, it was just, uh, become a joke. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like you were saying, there, we have to also sit with what that does to doubling down on trauma. Yeah. You know, it's almost like flaunting. Yeah. Right. You're, you're flaunting your uh, terror. Yeah. Right. Your capacity for terror. Yeah. And, you know, when you look to blues and, you know, you call it and you said it and you called it in the book a blue sensibility, I want to ask you to talk a little bit more about that. You know, you, you do say, you know, I don't want to work through blue songs. You're not sort of making that your focus, um, uh, which I think is a, a fascinating project, but that's, you know, it's a totally different kind of project. But instead, blues as a sensibility, blues as a critical concept. Uh, I really love this part of the book. Um, and you, uh, there's a, uh, uh, a characterization you get from Cone, which is it's a secular spiritual. Mm -hmm. And when I, every time I've seen that phrase, I get like a chill. That's just an amazing characterization. So I wanted to ask you first, um, where do you draw your conceptualization of this notion of blue sensibility from? How would you sort of, you know, talk about your sources and sort of the way you put it together? And also, what do you think that blue sensibility helps us see what aspects of the world does it help us see that maybe we wouldn't see without that concept as our sort of interpretive or, or intellectual frame. So I think where I started 
was actually with listening to a lot of blues music and a lot of blues albums have interludes where the artist is talking. And so, um, and there's actually a great recording that Alan Lomax did with Big Bill Brunzi, Memphis Slim, and I can't remember which one, but one of the Sonny Boy Williamses. It might have been the first one, but I can't re- remember which one. I think it was the first. I think yeah. it was a, okay. So they're having this conversation in the 40s about their lives and about music and about Jim Crow and all these things, which actually wasn't uh, initially published um, because it was mm-hmm. seen as so controversial. Uh, because they're very explicitly talking about like what it's like to work on a levy camp, what it's like to work on these, um, you know, as a sharecropper and things like that. Mm-hmm. So um, in that uh, interview and in some of these other kind of interludes between different um, different uh, songs, these these blues musicians often described what they were trying to do with their music. Mm-hmm. And what it is that where where the blues kind of come from? So they a couple of them talked about well the blues came out of reels, which were these kind of uh, folk songs, or um, the blues was what uh, was what uh, someone might sing to themselves when they couldn't like chew out the boss, mm-hmm. but they wanted to like get that off their chest that they'd like you yeah. know kick the kick the mule and make up a little song about about what they were feeling. And so I found that listening to blues music and these albums and some of these interviews straight from the mouths of these blues musicians was really helpful for thinking about what it meant for them as musicians, um, what it meant for them as people who were coming out of or living in Jim Crow um, and coming out of this um, black Southern cultural tradition. And so I started there um, and then shifted into, again, it took me a while to get to the scholars. So I then shifted into thinking with, you know, Ralph Ellison and what Mm -hmm. Ralph Ellison says the blues are. Um, And then eventually I got to, you know, James Cone and um, Jeffrey Ferguson and um, uh, Angela Davis and and others Mm -hmm. writing about the blues. But it really was kind of started with, how musicians understood what they were doing as musicians mm-hmm. with blues music and then thinking outward from there, what does it mean for someone to have the impulse to return to something painful mm-hmm. um, as a way to process and in some ways dull the pain mm-hmm. and allow the pain to kind of sit with you still because I think that's what's so profound about the blues is it's not, um, it doesn't have a happy ending necessarily. You're just, it's off your mind. You're kind of able to make it through. And so it's not about really easy solutions. There's no cure that's being offered. Yeah. Instead, it really is about like trying to just move on enough, enough with your life. Mm -hmm. Um, without the blues getting in the way of living. And I, I love that, that, that the way you talked about that and the way, the way you work with blues sensibility in the book, because among many things, you know, which is just a, in some ways, just a repetition of what you just said, but you know, these blues singers, you know, there was a folk revival in the, the, the 1960s that really turned them into this sort of noble savage sort of expressive people. 
but these moments, like what you do in this book, and as you say, Ellison or Hurston or Albert Murray, you know, um, they're there to like instruct us, if not remind us, um, that these are intellectuals. They're doing everything because what you were describing, that's just intellectual work. Mm-hmm. It's like saying, like, we do this, we play these language games and sound games for a variety of reasons because we are addressing these certain aspects of our world in a way that makes sense in the context of our world. And I think it's easy to give a characterization, not easy, but it's one thing to give a characterization of that, you know, and Murray and Ellison love to embellish that with like Bessie Smith's a sorceress and a wizard. And, you know, I love all of that stuff, but what I really love is that beyond that characterization, what you do in the book is actually put that to work. Right? Mm-hmm. If these are vernacular intellectuals, here's what it means to work with them as vernacular intellectuals. They produce a sensibility that allows us to understand afterlives, yeah. right, in the immediacy of those traumas, right? Yeah, and the actual what I was also really beautiful about it was they, you know, they they have little citations too, right? So they'll actually play. The, if if he's talking about bending a note, he will play uh, Mississippi. Um, Fred McDowell will play, although it's funny, he's from Tennessee, but he'll, he'll play like the bending of the note using the bottleneck so you can hear it and you kind of understand what he's doing as a musician. Like there's something about what the, the bending of the note, which is kind of a bending of time and, and feeling mm-hmm. and doing things that Ellison's talking about at the beginning um, of Invisible Man, where you're kind of hearing um, around corners and things like that. He's doing that, but you're actually able to hear him demonstrate it for you as a kind of citation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think those, um, those Lomax recordings where they include the talk is mm-hmm. they're always so interesting. I, you know, when you're you know, talking about Fred McDowell and, um, you know, the sort of demonstrations of differences. First of all, you, you see that that's craft, mm-hmm. right? That's an art form. It's not just playing feeling or all those sort of folk revival things, but also the way they often correct the interviewers or try to, but let it go. I, I think like the Stovall, Stovall pan, uh, plantation recordings of Muddy Waters, where uh, I think Lomax is doing the, the interview and he keeps saying uh, open G and he's like Spanish tuning. <laughs> right. And he just keeps saying it's Spanish tuning. He's like an open E and he's like cross note. He just keeps saying it's cross note. You just hear Alan Lomax keep calling it something different. And it's that moment where it's like these guys aren't just playing, they're thinking through their art form, like every artist, right? Like every artist is an intellectual. And going, uh, like putting that to work in scholarship for me is a, such an, an important an urgent part of African-American studies, mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, yeah, that the, the way they can demonstrate, but also tell those stories and the uh, stories being too incendiary for their moment, right. Being censored mm-hmm. is itself like super interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, you mentioned Ellison. So let me ask you about Ellison. You mentioned, I think it's in the introduction, you know, that the, the sort of nature of your approach in the book draws on this notion of lower frequencies. And I think you give us sort of, it's part of a list of synonyms, but you mentioned Ellison, um, you know, that basically the book it's, I mean, you have tons of documentation, right. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not documentation that is all sort of empirically or positivistically like revealing. 
mm-hmm. you know, part of the lower frequencies and, and, and its cognates is about having to read through absences. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested just to hear you talk a little bit about how you understand that method of reading for absences mm-hmm. and um, why it's important in this kind of project and what kind of demands it puts on you as a, as a researcher and writer. Because the research, as I said, you have so many doc- so many documents, mm-hmm. but the documents are such a small part of the story because you're a reader of the documents and you read them for absences. So I just want to ask you to talk a little bit about whether it's in terms of lower frequencies or absences or your own way mm-hmm. of characterizing, like what is that method and what kind of demands do you feel like it put on you as a writer? Yeah, so I started the project by having um, read something by a fiction writer. So I read Going to Meet the Man, and he has a lot more, Baldwin has a lot more leeway in creating characters and, you know, filling in silences if he needs to as a a creative writer that I don't have. And so Mm -hmm. there was this moment of like, am I really going to be able to recover things, especially when the silence was often a matter of safety. Yeah. Um, and so I was worried that I would, would not be able to write a book on this in part because of the, the fear of the evidence not being um, available. Um, I do think that uh, one of the ways I had to adapt was think, okay, about how do you recover something that someone might not have been able to say openly or might not want to revisit or might not um, have the capacity to bring bring back up. And so um, one of the places I looked was in the kind of folktales and ghost stories that people told, mm-hmm. which were often providing a level of plausible deniability, a kind of level of uh, an intermediary doing kind of getting the vengeance that they themselves desired um, that allowed for a more open expression of condemning lynching and mm-hmm. remembering the lynched. So uh, the, the third chapter has on haunting has a several of these kinds of stories that are, they are directly about lynching, but they allow for a little more safety to the speaker mm-hmm. because it's God who is punishing the city of Waco, or it is um, the ghost of this lynched man who is coming to haunt mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. town. Um, and that level of plausible deniability or that kind of distance, I thought was really um, helpful for thinking about how do I find something that's in not quite trying not to be found, but in that case, but harder to, to locate. Mm-hmm. And I think another thing that I had to do or that I made sure I did was I, I did I listened to a lot of oral histories and I also did some myself. And uh, when I was transcribing oral histories, um, which I'm a very slow transcriber, so um, never hire me for any transcription <laughs> services. <laughs> but I'm such a I'm such a uh, such a deliberate typist. I can't imagine transcribing or handwriting or whatever. However you do. Oh it, God, so. it was don't so hire me either. I was listening to cassette tapes with headphones on and like rewind, stop, play. You know, you know, over and over and over again. Um, and uh, one of the things I noted, partly because it was taking me so long to get a sentence out, was pauses. 
and what might have also been going on in the dynamic uh. between the interviewer and the interviewee. And um, there's a, I think the end of chapter three, I, I talk about this woman named Minnie Weston, who's being interviewed by Paul Ortiz. And um, she's, you can hear the reluctance in her voice mm-hmm. as she's being asked very gently, I should say, very gently to recall some horrific things that happened to people in her family. And um, I think reading that, uh, listening for what she's not saying and how it's coloring what she is saying and the fact that at the very end of her talking about these really horrible stories, she kind of says, and that's all I have to say about this and kind Mm. of putting it away was helpful for me to be able to understand what it means for someone to recall something that horrific mm-hmm. and yet to also know how to put it away yeah. when you needed to put it away. And so there was a different kind of listening happening there where I was actually listening to the change in her, the tone of her voice. Um, there was a pain in her voice mm-hmm. that was palpable. And I think pay, paying attention to that was was really important for understanding how this trauma was um, was like in the in terms of a lived experience. Yeah, I, hearing you talk about that and that the the way we listen for those pauses and the way those pauses become um, the interpretive frame for everything that follows, even if what follows is 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 powerful on its own. Um, that's such an important part of reading uh, and, and, and interpreting and something that I think goes to sort of my next question about sort of um, or question in a bit about the genre of the book. But, um, but, you know, when you're talking, it also reminded me, you know, of, of in Cloud Lanceman's Shoah, um, you know, which is just a series of witnesses for nine hours and 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And when people write about Shoah, the film, they really write about the pauses and the absences. You know, the one that always sticks out for me is this interview with Philippe Mueller. And, uh, and he gets to this point and he doesn't want to talk. And Lanzmann's like, you have to speak, you have to speak. Very aggressive. And he throws up his hands, but then there's this pause. And then he says, my life had become meaningless. And it's like saying my life had become meaningless it's a really powerful thing, right? Mm-hmm. Especially in a cinematic context on the page, it's enough. But but then when you actually think about like what's important in that moment, it's that pause, mm-hmm. right? And how to write about those pauses, I think is, you know, like you're saying, like a sort of literary genius, you know, a Baldwin or an Ellison, I mean, they just have a flair, a blues musician who can make a sound out of an instrument that only a few people on earth can they can do it, but to take that on, like as writers, I think it's it's a real challenge. You know, I, I mean, again, I think you do it really well. It's part of what I love about the book is you just take that, take the blue sensibility seriously as an intellectual project, and take that sense of absence as something you have to write about, and not just say I can't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, and 
So thinking then about also the the sort of expressive media in the book, right? Obviously, it's a, it's a written book, and you draw on this variety of resources. In the um, violence chapter and the protest chapter, mm-hmm. you have like a I don't want to say the text is interrupted, but it, it it has like moments of visual culture. You have some photographs. You have a couple of reproductions of Jacob Lawrence paintings, um, which I think are really powerful. You know, I, I, like I said before, I was, I like that you didn't have a lynching photograph on the the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it invites a kind of voyeurism mm-hmm. that then it can't inside the book because by the time these visual pieces come up in the book, um, we're were ready to look at them. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to put it. But I'm interested for you as you put the book together, because it's a discursive project, right? What then this moment of, of visual culture entering your, your discourse, like what what was at stake in that? Like, why did you want to do that? And what do you think it adds to the kinds of things you're trying to talk about? Um, I, I, I'm really, thank you for this question because it's, um, I, I think that the intentionality around using images and trying to use them in a way that was sensitive and yet honest, Mm -hmm. um, was something I really wanted to, um, achieve, try to achieve in the, in the book. Um, I, I think that the, um, the first images I think pop up in the violence chapter and the first ones that I talk about are um, paintings by Jacob Lawrence where nooses are present or things that are resembling nooses are present, but there are no bodies. Um, and then it's a couple pages later that you get to these effigies of lynched bodies um, that kept on coming up in the archival research that I was doing. And so uh, I did want to kind of begin with black artists and what they're saying about lynching through their art, through their, through visual culture, um, and then shift to the white supremacists use of uh, a similar and yet very um, different kind of image in terms of the intent. Yeah. and, and make make sure that I've started with Jacob Lawrence rather than the effigies. Um, and, I've, and I've always worried about like, do I prepare people enough for like turning that page? Um, because a couple of the images just by virtue of the size of the um, file had to be vertical. And so some of them take up whole pages. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was also important to think about memory through the visual um, because so much of how um, people remember is is through being haunted by an image, whether it's a photograph or it's something that they remember, and that memory is is translated into like an image in their brain. Um, I talk about a man named Robert Hall in the book who, um, as a child, came up in the woods upon a lynched body, and that image of the lynched man haunted him in his nightmares for years. And so I think it's important to talk about the visualness of, of the terror um, because of how that was one of the ways in which it stayed with people was, was actually the, the, the visual um, itself. 
Um, I also wanted in the protest chapter to, again, think about a very different kind of image. So instead of it being lynched bodies or nooses, to think about black mourning through Mm -hmm. uh, the visual. Um, Again, I think that so often when we talk about black people's lives, we talk about suffering. (laughs) Um, And so when you see mourning, which is about sadness, but is also even more so about love. I wanted to make sure that was also front and center. Yeah. This, as you said, there's so many ethical like considerations in putting vi- visuals around lynching, you know, reproducing photographs and, mm-hmm. um, you know, for what it's worth, I, 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 you know, as I said, by the time we turn that page, it's, um, our sensibilities have been really changed. Right? <laughs> I think we're ready to look at them in that preparation to look. Um, if nothing else, I think that's an accomplishment of the book is that it actually, if one reads you know, front to cover, one understands what it means to be prepared to, to look at those images. And I also don't want to diminish the, the, the first chapter is, has a lot of violence described on the page. So there's no images, but yeah. those were, um, I mean, they were hard to write because they, the subject matter was hard, but they were also hard to write because um, I wanted to uh, achieve a balance between really understanding the brutality without it becoming gratuitous. And yeah. so I think that I, I still struggle with how I how I feel I did in that first chapter because it was it sometimes it did feel like should I have um, change the way I wrote it. Um, because it did change over time. So this is, that's, it was, it was more graphic before in earlier drafts and I've, and I changed it, but I wasn't sure if I had changed it enough precisely because even in the absence of the image, the words on the page have their own kind of violence too. Yeah. I think these, you know, for people who take this stuff seriously, I just think these are some of the hardest questions we have as as scholars, especially as you're saying about about this work and about your own interests broadly. Of, of you know, we have to fight against forgetting, right? But then there's all the ethics of like, how do we how do we make present our memories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how to write about traumatic violence, uh, whether it's in image or recounting or characterizing oral histories, news articles. Uh, these are really hard questions. And, you know, um, you know, I, I think, I think what you, what you do is what we ought to do, which is be attentive, but also not say it's too ethically fraught. I'm going to not take it on, you know, and, you know, in that way, you know, maybe this is maybe I, I not maybe I think this is actually a nice segue to my next question about what kind of book this is because mm-hmm. I think the kinds of books that we write also help us understand the how to negotiate those ethical questions about representing violence. You know, I, I was just looking at the book because so I was like, I thought it was in a series called something about history. It's new narratives in history or, or new directions uh, in narrative history. Yeah new directions in narrative history and perhaps narrative history is the answer here, but I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you characterize the book? 
because I was reading it and I've read a few books lately where I wasn't exactly sure how to categorize the books. I really love that. So that's not a, that's not a bad thing. It's actually the opposite. Um, I mean, it did strike me, I have to say, not to force structure or any reply, but really as a black studies book in the sense that you weren't afraid of, of, of taking on the affect of dimensions, right? There's no, there's no illusions of distance. There's an intimacy there to the experience that you do test your writing through. There's the visual, there's tons of documentation. There's also this sensibility that you work with, which as you were talking about is leads us to understand absences and silences. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to ask you, you know, how do you think about this book? You know, I know you're trained as an historian. You teach in African-American studies. So you produce this book. Where does it fit? How should we characterize it? So I think um, it sits somewhere in an intersection. <laughs> and the intersection probably has a lot of black studies, some cultural history, and uh, cultural studies it kind of all, all of those things together. Um, I am glad actually that it was not easily identifiable as one specific thing in part because I want it to be legible to a much wider audience. And I also wanted to take up questions that were not s- just siloed in one particular academic tradition. Yeah, no, I, th- I mean, it absolutely does that. I, I, it's a book that I've already already recommended to a number of friends who work on history and memory in the Caribbean, mm. you know, Thank thinking you. about colonialism and, and the Middle Passage. And I just think it's one of these books that even though it's specifically about the United States and the U.S. phenomenon, um, the approach itself is, is instructive, as well as obviously the shared experience of racial terror, right, mm-hmm. among the, you know, between the Caribbean and Black U.S. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, within this history scholarship on lynching, there's been um, really wonderful things that I've, like wonderful studies that I've been able to draw upon to do this work. Um, and, and I, a lot of that work is a little bit more, um either thinking about scale and statistics and patterns um, or a lot of it is talking about specific places and times. So like how does lynching look yeah. like in this particular place? And so there's already such great scholarship out there that's asking those kinds of questions and looking at those questions. And I wanted to really center stories and mm-hmm. I really wanted to center um the and I wanted those stories to be woven throughout, um, and so the source base kind of reflects that. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of oral histories, interviews. Um, there's quite a few kind of images and um, artwork, but I really wanted it to be uh, trying to say something about lynching and trauma and memory um, that you would feel, I guess, connected to the people who were the subjects of, of the story. Um, because I think one of the things that I didn't want to do, and I actually, um, I don't have like a statistic page, even in the footnotes uh-huh. where it says like yeah. X number happened in between these years, um, which a friend of mine did ask for. He was like, where's the footnote where you talk about that? I want to cite you. And I'm like, well, it's actually not in this book, sadly. But uh-huh. I, I really wanted to actively think about 
what I could do in that intersection between Black studies, cultural studies, and cultural history that would allow for these individual stories, these community stories to come through. Um, Because as much as I think that the statistical analysis or the numbers are so important, Mm -hmm. I think it's also so important for us to remember kind of the, the human existence. Yeah. That's, that's at the core of that. Yeah. I mean, the existential dimension of all of this, um, you know, that's the focus of the book. I mean, it's for me, that's, that's the promise of area studies is Mm -hmm. to make books and in various kinds of intersections, not just possible. I mean, anyone can write the kind of book they want, but actually make it valued, Mm -hmm. right. As, as a, as a almost expectation of the area study, like you Mm -hmm. should write in intersections and very few people do, but this is, um, a book. And I I just uh, yesterday did a podcast with, um, Shanna Benjamin about her uh, book on Nellie McKay. Mm-hmm. And it was another one of these books, sort of, sort of two in a row, where I'm thinking about like, these are really great area studies books, very different kind of, uh, you know, uh, approaches or subject matter. But um, I, I really love that, love this as an, uh, a book at intersections and the, you know, what, what area studies makes possible if we all could just take that step. I always feel disappointed when people are like, yeah, you really write philosophical work. And I'm like, I want to write area studies work, but it's hard. (laughs) It's not easy. Well, you said a little bit about the, the, you know, the, you know, statistics and the the sort of, or, or, uh, you know, very regionally specific or moment specific studies. How do you think about also this work in relation to um, literary or visual culture approaches? You know, a book that comes to mind is Caritha Mitchell's uh, Living with Lynching. And also, and you talk about this in the, the, uh, in the book, uh, James Allen's Exhibit Without Sanctuary, which in its moment, I think in a weird way, it's kind of been forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe that's a theme here, but uh, was such a jolt. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and got talked about and and I thought in such important ways. But how do you think about w- what you do in this book in relation to, say, that literary approach that Caritha's book has and then without sanctuary as an exhibit, as something you're physically present to rather than as a reader? Yeah. So I think um, I, I remember one time uh, doing an interview for a job and um, someone being really quite shocked that I was applying for a history job and was writing about ghost stories because that's what my writing sample was was about these ghost stories. And I made it very clear that I'm not trying to verify the existence of ghosts in my book, but I want to think about why do people tell stories using ghosts and what does it mean for a ghost story to be passed on for so many generations that I can get it like 60 years after or 70 years after the story was, was, was initiated. So I think from the literary side of things, that attention to how the narrativity of around lynching memory um, looks, how, what it looks like, what it means, how it's a reflection of a particular uh, cultural tradition, how it's a reflection of a particular traumatic um, collective experience was really helpful because, uh, I mean, my texts are not quite the same as the plays that Caritha Mitchell's writing about, but um, I also am reading 
a kind of text as well through the mm-hmm. oral histories, but especially through these stories that people were telling each other um, or not telling each other. Um, and, and sort of reading mm-hmm. through that lens was really helpful. I think with, um, you know, if I, I do talk about Without Sanctuary quite a bit. And then I um, remember hearing about it pretty soon after the exhibit actually happened um, in, in 1999 because I had taken a class with David Blight and he had mentioned it in class. Mm-hmm. Um, but I haven't, I didn't actually get to see it. And so a lot of um, my kind of access to the uh, exhibit itself was through the book that was published, the book of photographs that was published, mm-hmm. and then talking to Joseph Jordan, who's was one of the curators of one of, he was the curator of the exhibit as it went to um, Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that same exhibit actually also went to other places too, like Jackson, Mississippi. Um, and when it was at the New York Historical Society, people were allowed to like leave their reflections. And so I read through a bunch of those reflections of people who had gone mm-hmm. through the, the exhibit. And then there were some, you know, articles written about it um, in scholar, kind of scholarly journals, but also in, you know, newspapers as well, kind of popular newspapers. And so I got a sense of the exhibit. And I I I, I think that the exhibit itself, it it's it makes it, it raises some of those same ethical questions for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also makes, reminds me of how important time is and context is for thinking about whether something is, um, or how we read the ethical questions. So, um, you know, the, the, for example, uh, Emmett Till's mother, Mamie Till Mobley showed a photograph of her son's battered body and had it, you know, published in, um, popular newspapers and, and, and magazines, and I think if the same thing were to happen in 2023, it I, I wonder about whether or not that would have the same kind of social impact that it had then. Yeah. And I, I um, think also about then this exhibit of lynching photographs in the late 90s, early 2000s. And if something like that, not that we've like, you know, moved on or anything, not that we've changed dramatically, <laughs> but I wonder what in an age when um, videos of police killings of, of unarmed black people, for example, are so easily accessible, how to read the, um, how, how, to re- how to think about such an ex- exhibit like Without Sanctuary in our present. And so I think one of the things I really liked about doing that research about the exhibit was that it raised for me a lot of questions about not only what do I want to show in the book and what don't I want to show in the book and how do I want to depict images of lynching, but also had me think about um, historicizing that exhibit Mm -hmm. itself um, and why in 1999 it played the role that it did um, mm. and had the impact that it did when I'm not sure how I would feel about another exhibit of the same kind right now. Yeah. 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 I think there's a, <clears throat> yeah, there's a story we probably can't tell right now because mm-hmm. we're in it, but uh, a story to tell about consumption, visuality, and trauma. 
mm-hmm. around uh, racial violence. Um, I'm not sure where that goes, but you raise a really interesting or articulate a really interesting thought experiment. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> what is what would without sanctuary be today? What would mm-hmm. you know in the age of of such you know massive consumption of images of Black Death mm-hmm. that seem to you know f- you know both spur protests and also spur complete inaction mm-hmm. at any at any substantial institutional level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, you mentioned the, the uh, you know, uh, Emmett Till's mother, uh, you know, circulating the photograph of, of hor- just horrifying photograph of, mm-hmm. of her son's body in a coffin. And, um, you know, then the movie came out, you know, I, I saw the, 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 what do they call them? The trailers for it. Mm-hmm. And the director came on and said, we're not going to, this is a story about a movie about joy. It's not a movie about, uh, about, tr- about black trauma mm-hmm. and death. Um, and that was so interesting for me because as you said, that was not, you know, you know Mobley's uh, response <laughs> to yeah. her son's death. But in this moment, what the director is saying makes perfect sense. And mm-hmm. yeah. Um, sorry to trail off a little bit on that, but you just raises such a, an amazingly, uh, dispiriting and really, I think, complicated uh, question about you know what would without sanctuary be today? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, because I, I think we're just not quite sure how we want to deal with as a society the technological uh, kind of the ways in which technology allows for the abundance of these images to proliferate and to be shared in such casual ways. Whereas if you're yeah. going to without sanctuary as an exhibit, it, it just is different because you're having to exert effort to go see it. Maybe this is where uh, abstraction needs to make a comeback to just push against a little <laughs> bit of this like level of consumption. I don't know. Um, teaching some Adorno this semester. So that's got me thinking about consumption that way. Mm. <laughs> well, let me think about this book um, as having readers, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully we'll get a lot of readers Um I think it's just really incredibly important as a book. And so when we write books, we all know readers just read them and they take what they want from mm-hmm. it. And, and there's kind of nothing we can do. That's part of reading, right? Mm-hmm. People people read and and uh, we can't control. That's good. Uh, but also can be frustrating. We can't control what happens right mm-hmm. when they read. At the same time, of course, when we write books, we want people to to – I always say walk away from the book differently, mm-hmm. right? We imagine readers impacted so that something about their sensibilities, the way they move and feel in the world are, are shifted and changed. You know, so it's not like an extraction, but really like a, a like an impact. And so I want to ask you, like, how do you want readers to walk away from your book? How they will is a different question, mm-hmm. but how do you want readers to walk away from the book as the author? Well, I um, I guess the way I'll answer this is uh, by way of Leon Litwack. So um, when I'm actually, I have two uh, mentors who work with Leon Litwack, and one of them told me the story about how after he'd written Trouble in Mind, which is about Jim Crow, and is inc- it's a difficult read to get through because it's not that not because of the writing, but because it's just the subject matter is so yeah. unrelenting, right? And it's just yeah. like you know, 400 or 500 pages of just unrelenting descriptions of Jim Crow um, in such powerful language. And um, she was telling me that she was sitting at some awards dinner 
And the person next to her was like, oh, I just couldn't, I couldn't, I just couldn't read that book. It was too hard. It's so depressing. And her response was, well, the book is about a heavy subject matter, but ultimately it's about black people making a way through it. Mm-hmm. And um, thinking about how just kind of like in the face of such um, just unabating white supremacist violence and hatred mm-hmm. that you had people making a way, carving out a life for themselves. And I hope that in this book, which is not as, I don't think it's quite the same level of um, uh, unrelenting intensity as Lit Wax book, but it certainly is about a very heavy subject that at the end of the day, the book provides readers with a sense of the horror, but also what it meant for people who had witnessed or been exposed to on some level this horror, that, that, that what it meant for them to find a way through, that what it meant for them to build lives um, afterwards, um, what it meant for them to love other people, to mm-hmm. care for their family members, to protect their family members and themselves from the very worst of what lynching was supposed to be doing. And so I hope that it leaves a kind of heaviness, but also a sense of wonder and, and a sense of the possible, yeah. um, not as a false hope or something like that, but as a way of thinking about how people through this blue sensibility made it through um, and often made it through with real grace, love, elegance, and all the rest. I love that. I also will say as as a reader, one of the things, and this sort of is an aspect of everything you were just talking about, I think it really helps us think about how to be a witness to witnesses, mm-hmm. which is what you are, of course, as a writer, is you're witnessing their witness. Mm-hmm. And um, I think especially for fellow writers, but, you know, and that's the only place I can kind of come from, but... We have to learn that that's a practice. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you witness witnesses and um, in their fullness, as you said, right? Mm-hmm. That that they have lives. These are human beings. These are not statistics. These are not um, you know abstract sites of pain. And so, appreciating that complexity, um, yeah, I think we absolutely do walk away from the book that way. So, 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 what about? Let me turn that around to you. You know what? how do you walk away from this differently? I mean, we are transformed by books. It's not like you, you decide to write a book and then the ideas you had are on the page and you move on. The process of writing changes our sensibilities, you know? Um, and this is an invitation to talk, you know, about if you want to talk about later projects, the book's fresh out. So like, you know, I'm not one of these, what's your next thing person, but uh, I also know you have other things that you th- you're thinking about. So I'm curious how the book, writing the book, you know, how it, altered your sensibilities and also where it's taking you as a thinker. Yeah, I think um, the the book has, um, I, I feel very lucky that I was um, able to write the book that I, that I, that I did because um, so much of it was contingent on people trusting me with their stories, the people that I interviewed about their family histories, yeah. about their own personal experiences. And so um, there's uh, what I like about about this book um, 
is that though there are these clear theoretical interventions, there's you know scholarly interventions throughout, it's ultimately really tied to black people and black mm-hmm. communities and something tangible, concrete, um, something that feels real. And um, I think that's something that I would really like to carry on with you know, future, future writing, mm-hmm. but also in my teaching as well. I think it's so important in the classroom to also make sure that students know that the, we're not just talking about abstract ideas. We're not just having like a, a, a debate for the sake of a debate or something that's up in the ether, but that we're thinking about mm-hmm. this in ways that are grounded in the actual lives of actual black people in the past, but also right now. Um, I think the other thing that I'm definitely taking with me is I've been working through a lot of the ideas around these questions about ethics in essays. And um, I would like to, I've been playing with the idea of of my next book being a book of essays um, Mm -hmm. that in part looks through some of these ethical questions uh, about how you represent violence. I also think about, I also want to be thinking about how we should think about silence. Um, we often think mm-hmm. about silence as a bad thing in, in African-American studies uh, because it's about something that was not recorded or hasn't been told or has been um, uh, unuttered in the public sphere. And I also want us to think about like, what if it's none of our business? What does it mean to be to respect the privacy of people who might not want to be found? And so think, thinking through this book has opened up a lot of those kinds of questions that I am exploring in some of these essays that I'm working on right now. Um, well, I can't wait to read these. This, I, I mean, those are such deep questions. I love that question of, like what would it mean for it to just not be our business? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's a tough question, I imagine, especially as someone trained in history where mm-hmm. everything is sort of thought of as everybody's business. Yeah. Um, and that that question of privacy and opacity, I, I love that. I can't wait to see where you go with that. Thanks. So hurry up and write all that stuff. <laughs> I always feel like when people talk about their future projects, I'm like, just write that stuff. I want to read that. So, well, Mari, I love this book. I thought it was, you know, it's an incredibly interesting book. I hope it gets a lot of eyes on it. It's um, really profound stuff and really moving and important. And thank you for writing it. And I, this conversation has been incredibly interesting. And is it, for me, is like added you know, elements to the book and made me see things shift the way I saw things in the book um, in really fantastic ways. So thank you for making the time. I, I really love this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I, I, um, I am often a little afraid of theory. So it's nice to be invited to talk about my book through a <laughs> theoretical lens, given the ways in which I sometimes um, have, have mild heart palpitations. <laughs> thinking thinking of through the philosophical thinking through the theoretical so thank you oh we theorists are nice people we just you know (laughs) fighting for our existence we can get aggressive or something like that 
All right. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate it. And uh, have a great rest of the afternoon. Thank you. You too. All right. Take care.